Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Marshall Hildreth, filling in for Bria Barthel today. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we listen to part two of Mark Dunley's coverage on the February 7th state budget hearing on the environment. Then we hear from Bria Barthel and her guest, interventional cardiologist Dr. Christoph Drizmalski and heart health advocate Dee Birkins as they dive into the often dismissed and misdiagnosed area of women's cardiac health. Later on, the sanctuary's very own Ellie Irons continues her series on the soil factory as she speaks with artist and educator Katrine Achenbach. Afterwards, we tune into Sina Basila Hickey's coverage of the community roundtable that followed Taina Asili's multimedia show, Fever Pitch. Finally, we end our show with Bria Barthel and Carol Roberts as they showcase all the fun happenings at Troy Public Library this February for toddlers, betweens, and teens. But first, here are the headlines. The Gazette reports that former Schenectady Deputy Corporation Counsel Christopher Marney, who exited the administration during a staff changeover just one month ago, has been nominated to serve on the city's ethics board. The Times Union reports that the latest case involving Eliza Williams has raised questions about the ability of the Albany County Jail to provide services to persons with disabilities. Five years ago, Williams was left paralyzed after being shot by Albany police during a pursuit. Now Williams is back in jail after he allegedly gave a gun to a 15-year-old who then shot and unfortunately killed himself. The county was recently unable to transport Williams to court for his bail hearing. The most recent Schenectady School District evaluation reports are a mixed bag. While two elementary schools and one middle school were elevated to good standing, a half dozen others were found to be in need of additional targeted support and improvement. District Attorney David Sori's decision to pay himself a bonus of more than $22,000 using state grant funds last year likely violated the county charter as well as state law. This is according to an analysis from an outside law firm, which was recently submitted to the Albany County Comptroller's Office. Sori's decided to include himself in the pool of non-unionized employees who received 11% bonuses. The Times Union reports that since 2022, the state attorney general's office has been investigating allegations of systemic sexual discrimination and harassment of female correction officers at Clinton County Jail, a facility where at least two former female inmates have also alleged sexual abuse by male employees. The Troy Record reports that the South End Tavern and its famous Ladies' Entrance, which are synonymous with South Troy, will be closing at month's end. After eight decades, owner Marty Butch Burke states that he is tired of seeing his profits dry up year after year due to increasing costs for insurance, taxes, utilities, and products. And that is all for headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, grassroots radio that builds community in north-central Troy and the capital region. 
Hudson Mohawk Magazine is engineered, hosted, and produced by volunteers. To learn more on how you can join the HMM team, go to mediasanctuary.org slash getinvolved. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or you can always give us a ring at 518-272-2390. Now we join Mark Dunley for part two of his coverage on the state budget hearing on the environment. The state budget hearing on the environment on Wednesday, February 7, started at 9.30 a.m. and lasted to the midnight hour. Hudson Mohawk Magazine has compiled the testimony of a number of the state's leading climate activists. While praising the governor for including major parts of the New York Heat Act in her budget proposal, advocates want the entire Heat Act included, as well as much faster action on climate, as extreme weather continues to explode globally. Making polluters pay, converting the capital to 100% renewable energy, public power, expanding the bottle bill, and getting the state controller Tom DiNapoli to divest from Exxon and other fossil fuel companies were cited in the testimony. In the second part of a two-part program, we hear from Lori Wheeler of the Public Utility Law Project and a new member of the Board of Trustees of the New York Power Authority, myself, Mark Dunley of the Green Education and Legal Fund, and Liz Moran of Earth Justice. My name is Lori Wheelock. I go by she, hers pronouns. I'm the executive director and counsel of the Public Utility Law Project. We go by PULP for short. Our written testimony goes through many different proposals and aspects, um, but tonight I want to start with two specific asks. The first is to protect codify and fund the energy affordability program. Michael just talked about it briefly, but essentially the energy affordability program was created in 2016 by a commission order. The Public Service Commission that regulates all of the investor-owned utilities from Con Ed to NYSEG to Central Hudson has a program right now for low-income households that gives them monthly discounts off their bills for a year. What they have to do is show that they're already enrolled in a public assistance program from SNAP to HEAP to Lifeline, and they can get these discounts for a year. It is a lifeline. It's one of the first things we do when someone contacts us and they're at risk of shutoff is check to see if they're getting these credits because every dollar helps their burden in some economic manner. This program is a vital lifeline. Last year we came to the legislature because we were concerned that there was under-enrollment. We felt there was about a million households out there that could qualify for this program, but didn't know about it. And thanks to Assemblywoman Salages and Senator Parker, data matching was passed and signed into law. So in 2025, we're gonna have the Office of Temporary Disability Assistance that has the lists of the low-income households and the utilities start data matching. And so there's gonna be a natural increase in the program, which we're so excited about. We thank the governor, we thank the legislature because that is momentum. But I'm here tonight because I am concerned about adding more people in the program the way it's currently funded. It's all ratepayer funding. It has a 2% budget cap. Each utility comes up with their budget, and so people enroll, they get their credits by a formula. But if you add more people and you hit the cap, the fear is adding more will decrease the credits. So that's why we're asking do no harm. Let's put $250 million into the budget for EAP to act as a cushion so that we can add those people safely to the program and then codify it to get it ready for things like cap and invest. 
we recognize that we are on a train when it comes to affordability. There's a lot of costs out there that we're not sure about that might shift around. And so we'll talk later and in our testimony about more transparency measures. But the last thing I want to put in a plug is for pulp. Um, our organization has been a huge supporter of intervener funding. It got vetoed again, but thank you for uh, getting it passed. Um, we need more support. We're a small but mighty office of 10 that represents the entire state. We've been in seven rate cases. We had 1,706 hotline calls last year and over 400 cases where we helped low-income New Yorkers and moderate uh, try to fight back and make sure they could empower themselves, prevent shutoffs, reach energy efficiency, while also maintaining a safe and affordable home. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak this evening. Uh, my name is Mark Dunley. I'm here to represent the Green Education and um, Legal Fund. Uh, I wanted to just start with a few quick things. Uh, my first job as a college student uh, back in the mid-70s was to uh, work in this thing called the bottom mill. Uh, it's time to update that, um, expand what is covered, and also go to a 10 cents deposit. Um, we support raising the funding for the water infrastructure from 60 million, um, 600 million rather than the proposed cut to 250 million. And as uh, Stefan and others have talked about, we need to finally make polluters pay for the damages they've been causing in New York State, and that starts um, with the uh, Climate Superfund. And I'll also say we probably support the proposal by uh, Assemblywoman Glick to uh, reintroduce wolves to help control the deer population, which is definitely having a negative impact. Uh, I very much appreciated the comments from uh, Cano from Fridays for the Future in New York City. Climate crisis is already here. Um, we had uh, extreme weather rampaging across the planet uh, last year. Uh, it led to the head of the United Nations say that the slow action by government on dealing with climate has opened up the gates to hell. Scientists are now debating whether or not in 2023 did we actually hit the 1.5 degrees centigrade warming target. We are out of time. We need to move a lot faster. Um, we need to, in fact, cut emissions much faster than laid out in the CLCPA. President Biden has said the national goal is a 50 to 52 percent cut by 2030, not the 40% cut that we're talking about here in New York State. We should at least go with Biden in the cap and invest program. We tend to oppose the cap and invest program for many reasons, um, but we support a lot of things in New York. We news to the floor of $23 um, for, for carbon is ridiculous. Uh, should be at least uh, 85, according to the IMF. Um, we include everybody. It is a little bit disturbing to hear that uh, OGS, uh, five years after we convinced the lawmakers to stop putting more frack gas turbines on Sheridan Hollow after a century of pollution, wants to take another 10 years to reduce emissions in the capital complex by over 50%. That is way, way too slow. Finally, one of the issues I've worked on for the last decade has been to get the New York State pension funds to be divested from fossil fuels. Um, we appreciate your assistance in trying to convince uh, Tom DiNapoli to finish that process and also to the, um, the New York State Teachers Retirement System to divest as well. My name is Liz Moran. I'm the New York Policy Advocate with Earth Justice. Thank you all so much for the opportunity to testify tonight. This budget could not be more critical to get right when it comes to acting on climate change and ensuring environmental and public health protections for New Yorkers. New Yorkers just experienced a hot and expensive 2023. 
As you heard earlier, 2023 was the hottest year in recorded history. Six months out of the year were the hottest. Each month was the hottest month of that year. And we saw it here in New York. I want to remind folks that the end of session last year, it was unsafe to breathe the air outside from the wildfire smoke in Canada. Additionally, New Yorkers are seeing an endless stream of increases to their utility bills. Albany has the opportunity to act this session. Thankfully, Governor Hochul included key provisions of the NY Heat Act in her proposed budget, and we are joining many today in urging the legislature to address the increasing utility bills New Yorkers are facing, along with the climate crisis, protect public health, create good jobs, by including the full NY Heat Act in this year's budget. Uh, so, not surprisingly, there has been a lot of uh, misconceptions put out there about what the NY Heat Act does. This is detailed in our written testimony, but I do want to take an opportunity to address some of these common arguments. At its core, every measure in this legislation is a cost savings affordability measure. Many are saying we're moving too fast, we need a plan, not a ban, that we also need to build a bridge. That's what the NY Heat Act does. It is a planning legislation that would protect consumers. So to address a couple things, the 100-foot rule and ending the obligation to serve, these are changes to existing law, so we're not automatically giving gas. So it's not prohibiting gas, but it's opening the door to other opportunities, non-gas alternatives. There really should be no hesitation to do this common sense policy. Um, with a minute left, I'd also like to name our support for a couple other things. We also do support the RAPID Act to accelerate electric transmission siting, to make sure that we're getting renewables to the places that need them, particularly downstate right now that it is more dependent upon gas. We're gonna need more electric transmission to get there. And lastly, there was um, some funky math that almost made its way into the budget last year. We want to reiterate our opposition to changing how the state accounts for greenhouse gas accounting. We also reject any false solutions, such as um, inappropriate hydrogen or biofuels where it's not appropriate. The climate law was very carefully designed. Sim uh, Relatedly, we also have opposition to the low carbon fuel standard. We also don't want you to cut the Clean Water Infrastructure Act. Okay. This has been Mark Dunlight for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Mark, for bringing us this important coverage. In the spirit of Valentine's Day and all things heart, we t take a listen to Bria Barthel's interview with interventional cardiologist Dr. Christoph Drismalski and heart health advocate Dee Birkins. This is Bria Barthel with Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And as most people know, February is Heart Health Month. And I'm here with two special guests to talk about an event that's coming up around women's heart problems and women's heart issues specifically. My guests are Dee Birkins, a heart health advocate who can share her own personal experience with issues, and Dr. Christoph Drzmowski, who is an interventional cardiologist, and we'll find out what the heck that means when we start talking. So Dee and Dr. Dee, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Thank you, Brea. To start off, uh, perhaps Dr. Drzmowski, I'll start with you. Tell us something about why there is extra attention in February about women's heart health. Are women more at risk or more difficult to diagnose? 
So everyone is at risk of having heart disease, whether you're a man or a woman. The classically, when we think about cardiovascular health and heart attacks, you can picture that uh, gentleman who is probably overweight grabbing his chest, but that's not the only person who can have heart disease. And women, a lot of times, will have a different kind of symptom, not your classic textbook symptom. So when something's not right, someone feels something's not right, it's important to get evaluated. And that's always the, the difficult thing is underappreciation of what symptoms are causing um, are, are the reason that someone should come to our attention and be evaluated for heart disease. We know that one in every five women will have a heart problem in their lifetime. And it's important to be evaluated if and when that time comes. Speaking of the, the difficulties, D, uh, in previous communication, you said you were a misdiagnosed woman. Tell us I a little was. bit about what happened with you. I'm currently 77 years old. And when I was about 47, so we're talking 30 years ago, I was experiencing a lot of chest pain on a regular basis. I was extremely exhausted in a debilitating sort of way. I was getting ready to turn 50 and I hated the thought of turning 50 because when I would complain that I wasn't feeling well, often what I heard was, well, you know, you're not as young as you used to be. So in my mind, I was associating turning 50 with not feeling well. And I had requested at the time from my primary care doctor to please let me go for a stress test because I noticed with exertion is when I had the chest pain going upstairs if I was walking around the block and I had leg pain also. And the problem was at the time I was very petite. I wasn't quite 50 and it ended up that this particular doctor told me that I had arthritis in my chest. Well, come to find out I had classic angina. That's what was going on. So after a couple of years, my gut instinct was telling me that something was really wrong. And, and I was frustrated because I had on numerous occasions asked him to send me for a nuclear stress test and he refused. He wouldn't give me the referral. He said to me, you know, and he would sit me down in the office and he would like do an EKG while I was there. And I was there. There was no, you know, activity involved and everything came back normal. I wasn't on blood pressure medication at the time. I had no blood pressure issues. My cholesterol was right smack dab in the middle of the normal range. And he said to me on paper, you look absolutely perfect. But the thing that he refused to consider in this whole situation was that my maternal grandmother, my mother, my mother's identical twin sister all had heart attacks before they were 50 years old, did not consider my family history. Dr. Drismalski, does that kind of ignoring people's symptoms still occur with women and also is it common that there's no problem showing on an EKG and yet there's heart issues? So that does not happen with me. I take every complaint seriously, but just like you can have a phenomenal mechanic and a not so phenomenal mechanic, you can have the same thing in medicine. So when something's wrong, I always urge patients 
you know, get another opinion never hurts for that. The trouble with the EKG is that it's sometimes a falsely reassuring test. It's a quick 10-second test, but really all an EKG can tell you is in that 10-second moment of time, are you having an arrhythmia, so an electrical problem that would refer to atrial fibrillation? That's the most common one we can see. And sometimes you can get other kind of EKG changes that give you an idea that maybe there's a problem, but it's very, very common to have a completely normal EKG right now and an hour later have a heart attack and that EKG will change because you weren't having a heart attack at the time, right? So it all depends on what's going on in the body. So again, the EKG is something we do very frequently. It's easy. It takes 10 seconds, but it's a lot of times falsely reassuring. Now you mentioned atrial defibrillation. And I've noticed that there are more of those devices available in public spaces. When did that start happening? What kind of training is needed to use them? Tell us something about the atrial defibrillators. So atrial fibrillation is the most common electrical abnormality of the heart. About 33% of people will have it in their lifetime. And technology has gotten all- I'm sorry, say that again. A third of people will have it? Yes, in their lifetime. Yep. Often happens as we get older, part of the uh, maturity stage of life. If you didn't have it before, it can happen in the future. Um, but technology has been phenomenal at evaluating that. Back in the day, uh, you had to wear a monitor for 30 days and then wait a couple of weeks for it to be processed. And then we're seeing what happened you know, weeks earlier. Nowadays, the monitors we use in our practice uh, are Wi-Fi based or cellular based. So we'll actually get, if there's an abnormality, we'll get warned about it real time. And nowadays they have things like the Apple Watch, Cardio Mobile that you may see on TV, which are pretty easy to use. Apple Watch, you just put on your arm. You need to set it up. It's important to set it up. If it's not set up, it won't work. But those are decent evaluating. They're not perfect, uh, but any of these tools and any technology that helps us is always a, a plus. I never see this stuff as a negative. It's always a plus because the more information you get, the better you, you can take care of patients. Now, you both have given a strong description of why it's important to pay attention to signals from your body, why it's important to be evaluated, why one EKG is not sufficient and don't fall for the, what did you say, the false reassurance of a good EKG. So there's an event coming up at the Women's Club of Albany, an evening of heart health with Go Red for Women on Thursday, February 15th. How do people sign up for it? And what's gonna happen there? I can take that one. People can RSVP directly to me at my email, birkinsdl at gmail.com. So that's be like boy, U-R-K-I-N-S, D like David, L like Larry at gmail.com. We do have an occupancy um, restriction, so we have to make sure that we don't go over our occupancy limit, but we do have quite a few openings at this point in time, and the public is very welcome to come and attend this really important presentation that can literally be life-saving. And both of you are going to be speaking there. And I see from the Women's Club website that beverages, light appetizers, and desserts will be served. Presumably yes. not really heavy, fatty desserts that could contribute <laughs> to having an issue at the event. 
Right. Our ladies at the club are being very conscientious to be heart healthy with what they're volunteering to bring in. So it's going to be kind of a potluck, but I got a lot of trust in these sharp, savvy gals. Okay. And Dr. Drismalski, for the people who are not able to attend on Thursday, what are like the top two or three tips you would give people to monitor or improve their heart health? Number one would be if you think something's wrong, come in and get evaluated. Uh, most common one is chest pressure. It doesn't have to be a pain, but chest pressure is a very common finding that is most concerning for us. The other one is palpitations. If you feel your heart racing, you're sitting there and all of a sudden it's going at 160 beats per minute, that would be the time I'd be worried about electrical problems. So the two is the coronary disease or blockages, and the other is electrical issues such as atrial fibrillation that we mentioned. So palpitations and chest pressure are the most common concerning findings. Thank you. That was Dr. Christoph Drzmelski from Capital Cardiology Associates, and I failed to find out what interventional cardiologist means. You'll have to go to the Women's Club on Thursday, February 15th to meet him in person and ask him yourself. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for sharing this important message. Thank you, Bria. Thank you. Make sure to join Dr. Christoph Dismalski and Dee Birkins on Thursday, February 15th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Women's Club of Albany. For more information, go to womensclubofalbany.com. For those just tuning in, I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Marshall Hildreth. You're tuned into the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and always streaming online at mediasanctuary.org slash HMM. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media right here in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org slash HMM. Now we join Ellie Irons as she continues her series on the folks involved with the Soil Factory, a space for exploring interactions between social arts and scientific networks in Ithaca, New York. In this segment, she speaks with artist and educator Katrine Achenbach. I'm Ellie, Nature Lab's community science educator. My conversation today continues a series of interviews with folks from the Soil Factory. The Soil Factory is an art science initiative in Ithaca, New York, whose activities have parallels with what we do here at the Sanctuary and Nature Lab. Today, I'm talking with Katrine Achenbach, who is an educator and artist who works with the Soil Factory. Welcome. Katrine, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, with pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm Katrine Achenbach, and I am part of the Soil Factory. I'm also like the co-founder of a nonprofit called Weave Community, which holds the space for the Soil Factory. Um, so the Soil Factory is one of the projects. And I run a group called Make Men's Meet. I look forward to learning more about each of those things. Maybe to start, can you tell us a little bit about the Soil Factory and how it got started? 
So the soil factory started actually right sort of in the pandemic or at the tail end of the pandemic when it became clear that people need a space to congregate, to exchange ideas and to experiment together. And we were so isolated in the pandemic and the start of the pandemic. And we've community community is all about enabling face-to-face conversations and bringing folks together from different parts of society so that they can mix and we can learn from each other. Community space is rare here in Ithaca and we needed like a space where this could happen. And so we rented or we are renting like a big warehouse where people come together from all walks of life and experiment with democracy through concert and art exhibits, experiments on soil science and the community garden and all kinds of projects that bring people together and and work towards a more just future for all of us. Great. That sounds like something I'd really like to experience. I'm curious, within Soil Factory, where your Make Men's Meet project fits in and if you could talk to us about, about how that developed. Yeah, so I have been mending for a really long time, mostly at home in isolation, because I look at mending as a uh, social arts practice as much as repairing also our clothing. And I think we are very divorced from the process where our clothing comes from and where it has to go when we're done with our clothing. So all of our clothing comes from the earth or from underneath the ground and has to go back there. And with increasing awareness of the ways that is unfathomable what we uh, and the overproduction that is happening and then the terrible working conditions for folks who make our clothing so we could buy something that does not reflect at all the work that goes into it and the havoc it it, it wreaks on the environment so during the pandemic where we were all isolated and I was sewing and mending and stitching all on my own I thought why don't we do this together so not only will we rescue clothes from the landfill, but we can also create community, recreate community, practice with being social and learn from each other at a very concrete skill of repairing something or mending a piece of fabric, but also creating community and repairing the social fabric at the same time. And so I had a little flyer. We have a mailing list and I said, well, come mend with me. And there was a lot of interest. And I think there's a growing awareness that this is a, not only a skill, but also something needed. And uh, we have been gathering every first and third Sunday to sit together, mend, and share stories. It's a very good vehicle also for the introverts who come, who can then communicate either through their clothing that they're repairing or, you know, sit there and just be part of part of a community without having to, without being put on the spot or without feeling the pressure of, you know, contributing something more than their presence because something that is all people can contribute in the moment. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I also have an appreciation for um, kind of social gatherings where you have something to do with your hands, <laughs> right? Yes, um, I think we don't think enough with our hands. So that's, that's another thing. I think that um, in the future, those skills hopefully will take some of that pressure off the earth where we are not in touch anymore with what we can do with our own hands and what we can create. For sure. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that connects into a little bit 
of some of the other aspects I read about your work when I was doing a little research for this interview. I know from the tagline for the Soil Factory, which is exploring interactions between social arts and scientific networks, that the Soil Factory has this focus on building community and networks across difference, which you already spoke to. And I'm wondering how your focus fits into that, obviously through the mending. That makes a a ton of sense, um, bringing different groups together to sit and repair. And I read online that you're interested in creating community through verbal, nonverbal, visual, and face-to-face interactions. Do you have other ways in, in addition to the mending that you think about that? Yeah, I'm actually coming from a language uh, background. So I've been working in language acquisition for a really long time. And I think over time, I felt that I teach a colonizer language. So and, and I'm not even teaching my native language. So that became sort of increasingly a theme for myself. And I also don't live in Germany where I was born and grew up. And it became increasingly clear to me that I, I felt uncomfortable that we don't pay enough attention to other languages and I feel textiles are sort of I look at textiles almost like a basic universal language that we all speak because we all get dressed in the mornings and we start our life and being you know being swaddled in like a blanket and um, that's also where we end so I felt it has a lot to do with our second skin and the language that we use to express ourselves long before we say anything people look at us and wonder who we are just by the way we dress and even if you're not aware or couldn't care less about fashion we still express something like belonging and so i look at that at clothing as our second skin but also as a language that we use to communicate a bit our values and i think um I think I got off course with with your question. Um, So the other expressions, no, I bring it back to the other expressions. Um, Well, I think um, the story sharing is is sort of the immaterial art that I look at really as an art form, like to have conversations that matter and how to do this across where we usually don't find common ground, right? To create that common ground. I'm interested in uh, communal art as well, like where we stitch together something. So we did, let me, let me go back to your question. Your question was. I think you're doing a beautiful job of answering it. I mean, it talks about, yes, yes. I mean, you went in places that I wouldn't have known to ask you about. So this concept Mm -hmm. of our profound connection to the fibers that we wrap our bodies in and how that goes birth to death and how we tend to not center that is very related. You were talking, I was asking about nonverbal, visual, face-to-face and verbal interactions. And you've kind of covered all of those, the storytelling, (laughs) the visual way we express ourselves through clothing. So I'm learning a lot. um, And I think our (laughs) listeners are as well. Do you want to add anything to that? We only have a few minutes left, um, so we could also move on to talking about if you have any visions for the future of programming at the Soil Factory or any kind of favorite moments from the past that you'd like to share um, as a kind of invitation for our listeners to understand even a little bit more. Yeah, I have have favorite moments, and perhaps that is a sort of a selfish thing, but I remember like one of the very first Make Men's Me, there was a student coming to And she said, I am so excited. I am so sick of learning from YouTube. I love learning with people. And I love this because I'm a YouTube learner. I will learn a new stitch and get all excited. And I really love this. And I have been uh, trying to heed that as a, let's not have a PowerPoint, not one more PowerPoint. Let's really just look at what's in front of us and, and concentrate more on touch and how we learn from each other and what's required. Because I think collaboration and cooperation 
That's only that's the only shot we have, I think, really, if we want to get ourselves out of the mess that we have created. So that was a favorite moment. And I love when I think we did a dinner. Yeah, one of the favorite moments, not related to um, the make men's meet, other than we have been stitching like a big tablecloth that started at the saw factory where we, for example, stitch like around a table and everybody can make a mark on something. So that's one thing. But one, the event that I wanted to mention is a big dinner where we just ate things sorted by color. And it was a lot of fun. We were all wondering what they're going to people bring because there are no blue foods other than blueberry. And it was, it was really like one of the most amazing moments to share this, the stories around food. And so that was one of the events that I loved at the software, but there's also too many to really. <laughs> to well, I'm going to encourage our listeners to to check out the website, which is thesoilfactory.org, and to keep listening because we'll be talking to more Soil Factory folks in the future. And the work you do sounds so um, kindred to what we do here at the Sanctuary and Nature Lab. So thanks so much, Katrine, for speaking with me. Thanks so much, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Ellie and Katrine. You can find out more on The Soil Factory by visiting thesoilfactory.org. Rooted in her artistic journey of creating music that addresses the intersectional issues related to climate change, Taina Asili created the multimedia show Fever Pitch. We now hear from the culmination of the event, the community Roundtable, which was an opportunity for the community to discuss solutions with local community leaders. Taina Asili created the multimedia production Fever Pitch, which was performed at the Linda on January 27th. The dance, music, and projection part of this performance was followed by this community conversation. All right, everyone, welcome back. Did you all like the show? Thank you. I look forward to sharing it with you again as we continue to grow it. There's so much yet to be done. But an important piece of this show is this community conversation. So I'd like to introduce Merton Simpson of SHARE, Sheridan Hollow Alliance for Renewable Energy. We have Elisha Bacon of Berkshire Taconic Community Foundation. Xanthe Plymail of Fridays for Future, and Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm. Leah, if you don't mind starting, and we'll make our way this way, if you could just please introduce yourself by sharing your name, your pronouns, and providing a brief overview of your involvement in climate justice within our local community. Uh, my name is Leah Penniman. I use all pronouns. I'm co-founder and farm director at Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, just about 40 minutes from here. Soil is an incredible reservoir of carbon. Colonization destroyed 50% of the soil organic matter through tillage and industrial farming. And we have found that in just 10 years, you can put all of that back using Afro-Indigenous regenerative methods. So our job as farmers is to call the carbon, call the life back into the soil and also to make sure that community members who are surviving food apartheid are fed, that we're training and equipping and inspiring the rising generation of black and indigenous farmers, and that we're encouraging the public to get involved in defense of the earth and all those who care for the earth. 
Um, so I'm Xanthi or Zan. I use they, them pronouns. I'm 22 years old, and right now I'm representing Fridays for the Future, uh, local chapter for Capital District New York. We, we started actually a couple months ago this year, and what we're hoping to do is to gather really young people, so college-age people, people attending school, the UN technically defines a young person as anyone under 35 years old, but we welcome everybody to get out of their head and more into the area. Um, we strike every Friday at the New York State Capitol currently. Uh, my name is Elisha Bacon, and I go by she or they pronouns. I'm currently with Berkshire Taconic Community Foundation, and so I'm transitioning out of climate justice um, with Mothers Out Front into a realm where I'm actually providing funding directly to black and brown people so they can start businesses, expand their dreams, and um, I'm finding the work to be very fulfilling because we are actually feeding people and meeting urgent needs, and so that's very exciting. Well, my name is uh, Merton Simpson, and with Ruth Foster, I'm co-chair of the Sheridan Hollow Alliance for Re Renewable Energy. But I'm a long-term you know, community activist. I was formerly on the um, board of the Social Justice Center uh, with Vera Michelson for a stint. I was co-chair of the Coalition Against Apartheid and Racism. Before I came to Albany, I was with the Patrice Lumumba Coalition. Uh, based on the energy that we had tonight, though, I recommend Codex Esoterica. There's a lot of knowledge that really explicates the ancient wisdom with modern science. And the more you understand, the more the connectivity exists, uh, the better we're able to move forward. I don't use pronouns per se, but I embrace the South African concept of Ubuntu. I believe uh, as a humane being that we're all together, so I am, so you are. And I believe in connect connectivity rather than separation. In your opinion, what are key steps community members can take to actively participate and support the climate justice movements in our area? Well, of course, support all of these wonderful activists and organizers and their organizations, of course, step one. Because here's the thing, the folks who are most directly impacted by climate change, who happen to be globally, black and brown folks, uh, folks without access to wealth, uh, folks in marginalized climatic environments, equatorial and island environments, urban heat islands, farm workers, also happen to be not only most at risk, but often having the cultural and scientific knowledge of how to solve the problem. For example, there's absolutely no way we're gonna be able to feed the world without destroying the planet, without harnessing the wisdom of the campesinos, the paisans, the indigenous farmers around the world, who have for millennia figured out that very delicate, beautiful balance of how to make sure we get all the calories and nutrients that we need out of the earth, but that it continuously regenerates, right? And so if those folks, if our communities are left out of the conversation, it's really impossible to chart a way forward. I recommend belonging to a CSA farm with a regenerative agricultural bent, so that's like no-till, organic, so that you can be part of sequestering the carbon. I recommend being part of land back and land reform movements. We really need to make sure that our forests and grasslands and agricultural lands are in the hands of most impacted communities who are going to prioritize earth and community care. And we also need to make sure that we hold our institutions accountable for making choices that 
lean towards renewable energy, you know, lean towards making the correct policy decisions on the international scale. And so many of us, those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to vote, need to be out there making our voices heard. So I'll actually say what got me, I guess, more into the movement and like, I guess, active rather than just thinking about it and being stuck in a cycle of anxiety and like, oh, you know, what is my future going to be, et cetera, et cetera, was composting. So that's something I would recommend, especially it, I, f I feel like it, again, gets you out of your head and into the world and it sequesters carbon and does so many great things. Um, and there's a lot of local community gardens that will accept your compost and just so many great programs in Albany and around there. Um, but I'm also a bit of a policy nut, maybe not a nut exactly, because I'm looking at actual policy nuts and they know way more than I do, but something we could do locally that I feel like would bring, you know, public, self, uh, public safety and health and justice into the area is close the SA Dunn landfill. Um, there's a lot of uh, refugees who live nearby there. The, the landfill is located directly next to a K through 12 school. Um, and it's, it's terrible for the air quality in that area. So I don't know, that's just one thing that I would really like to see happen very soon. I think that we're fortunate that we have so much history that we can look back on. Um, not only how Leah described, but also you know, our ancestors fighting for freedom. Um, Ibrahim Kende said something powerful that, you know, people didn't think slavery was ever going to end and then one day it was over. And so I think we need to, you know, not only work to dismantle the system of oppression and white supremacy and patriarchy, but also be imagining what is the future that we're moving towards so that we don't continue to replicate the same system. Um, so bringing it very basic, we need to agitate, educate, and organize. Uh, we need to form communities, we need to be strategic. Um, I'm involved with Citizen Action and League of Women Voters, and I believe that democracy is very important. Uh, I think there's a real harm right now being done to our institutions that people are thinking that maybe you, know, you shouldn't engage. Even if you don't vote for President Biden, there are so many other reasons to show up on election day. In New York State particularly, we have the opportunity to enshrine women and trans rights, all human rights, into our Constitution. And so we need to see the government as not that thing or those people, but it's us. Little actions every day, educating yourself on the issues, being informed, being engaged, voting, but also civil servants. If you don't like your representatives, run for office. And if you're looking for support in doing that, you know, contact Citizen Action, get involved in the Working Families Party. Um, we are one community and we can do this together. Invest in solar energy. You know, uh, if you're ambitious enough, you could explore geothermal energy. Right now in Sheridan Hollow, we have a pilot project to do a thermal energy network to get off the fossil fuels from the Sheridan Avenue uh, plant and to deal with geothermal energy, which is cost-effective, non-polluting, and the wave of the future. Um, you know, I think for people who are in the audience who are community organizers, I would recommend that you go to, you know, battleground states like Pennsylvania or Georgia and actually organize there. New York State will probably do the right thing. But on the local level, the funds that we send to Washington that come back to us are controlled by the people who are in Washington. And so it's important that this year, more than any other, the right people in control, because if not, um, we could be seeing the beginning of the end. I mean, I, I don't think anybody who's awake 
uh, it's lost on them how serious a moment this is uh, politically and geopolitically. Uh, geo so um, again, we have to act with the urgency that's required because we're, we're really at a tipping point. Thank you to Sina and Tayinia for bringing us this important and ever-needed community conversation. Now for some February fun as we join Bria Barthel once more on the happenings at the Troy Public Library. This is Bria Barthel with Hudson Mohawk Magazine and with um, the early spring break coming up in February for many kids. Carol Roberts is here to tell us about a bunch of youth activities going on at Troy Public Library. Carol, take it away. Well, um, first I want to tell you about our winter reading challenge. Um, we're calling it a chill winter reading challenge. It's from February, um, all of February, and kids um, can pick up a reading log or they can um, sign up online. And uh, they set their own goals, and at the end of the reading challenge, they'll get a free book and some prizes. And it's for kids ages three to 18. Next, I wanna tell you about our preschool music hour with musician Deb Cavanaugh. She's a local folk singer. And she'll be here Thursday, February 15th um, at 10.30. And this is um, for children up to age five with an adult. Next, Clifford's birthday. So we're gonna meet Clifford in person, Clifford the big red dog. And that will be Tuesday, February 20th at 2 p.m. And we'll join um, WMHT Public Television here at Maine um, to celebrate and uh, we'll have hands-on activities, although registration is required. That's the only program, um, one of two programs that require registration uh, this month. And you would re register for any programs and get more information at the website, thetroylibrary.org. Right, or you can also call the library and we'll be happy to sign you up that way. Next, we have Learn to Crochet for Teens, and they'll be learning how to make a scrunchie. And this is on Wednesday, February 21st at 3 p.m. And so they'll learn some basic um, crochet stitches, and um, they'll walk home with a scrunchie that they've made. So a scrunchie is like a hair tie? Yes. Yeah, a knitted hair tie. And um, this is for teens ages 13 to 18 and they can um, sign up online or call the library. We still have some room in there, so if someone's interested, they shouldn't wait too long. Is everything supplied? We're in a room where I see a bunch of different uh, yarns here, but I don't know if, that, if those are available for the scrunchies, or they, do they need to bring their own yarns? We have everything they need. We'll have needles and yarn. Great. Next, um, we have Master Magician James Snack, and this is during February break week, I should mention. Um, this is Thursday, February 22nd at 3 p.m. for uh, children and families. I would say kids maybe five and up. He's wonderful. He is a master of sleight-at-hand tricks, so we're glad to have him back. Silly Science Night is the second Wednesday of the month, and so... On Valentine's Day, um, that will be from 6 to 7 at Maine. And this is for kids in ages, I would say ages 4 to 12. Crafty Kids Night is the third Tuesday of the month from 6 to 7. And that will, um, each month we have a different craft 
for kids ages 4 to 10. So what's the date for the third, whatever it is? Um, it is February 27th at 6 p.m. here at Maine. And we also have a teen anime club, which is the fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7, and that will be February 28th um, for teens ages 13 to 18. Those all sound great. Now, you mentioned Main Library a couple times, and at this point, Main Library is the only Troy Library that's open. Have you changed your scheduling for Troy Youth Activities with the closing of Lansingburg? Have you tried to, to have more, or does that really not affect the offerings, or how, how has Lansingburg's temporary closure affected things? It really hasn't affected our offerings because, you know, Lansingburg did some programs, but most of the programs were at Maine. Um, I know there are some adult programs that came over, but the kids' programs um, aren't really affected by it. The one thing we don't have is uh, Dungeons & Dragons, which uh, I'm sure will resume once um, Lansingburg's open again. And besides these specific activities, one of the things that impresses me whenever I come to see you here at TriMain Library is all of the materials and handouts and supplemental materials that are available in the young adult room? What do you call the room just inside the door? Our young people's room. Okay, young people's room. So maybe you can talk about some of the other types of support and resources that are available for families. Yes, we have take and make kits for teens and also for kids um, ages three and up. And so it's a take-home craft um, that kids can do, and there's instructions and everything they need um, other than maybe some basic supplies, like you know, possibly uh, some tape or something. But of course, if someone needs something, um, we can usually provide that as well. So if something needs water, you don't supply the water, for instance. Right, but if someone didn't have a glue stick at home, we'd be happy to give them one. Great. And again, that's Carol Roberts, head of Young People's Services at Troy Main Library. The website for more information is thetroylibrary.org. And the number to call for information? It is 518-274-7071, extension 103. And for people who are new to the area, where is the Troy Public Library's main branch located? We're right across from Russell Sage at 102nd Street in downtown Troy. Great. Thanks so much, Carol, for this interview and for everything you do. Thanks, Bria. Thank you to Bria and Carol. We always look forward to what Troy Public Library has in store. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Victor Max Valentine. And I'm Marshall Hildreth. We want to thank all of our amazing volunteers that made today's episode possible, Mark Dunley, Bria Barthel, Ellie Irons, and Sina Basilahickey. This program covers stories of environmental and social justice and is produced by the community for the community. If you value grassroots and independent media, please consider becoming a sanctuary dis sustainer. This program covers stories of environmental and social justice and is produced by the community for the community. If you value grassroots and independent media, please consider becoming a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org slash get involved. We want to hear from you. 
Find us on Instagram or Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org and be sure to tune in on weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. Full episodes and individual stories of Hudson Mohawk Magazine are available on demand at mediasanctuary.org slash hmm or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening and have a happy rest of your Monday. Thank you.